Hi, everyone, and welcome to Human Centered. I'm Nick Brunker, a group director of experience strategy at BML YNR and your host for the show. Thanks for dialing us up. As CX professionals, it's quite literally a full-time job keeping up with the pace of change and customer expectations these days. And depending on the size of your organization or the organizations you work with, being nimble and adapting quickly is just incredibly important to drive value, but also really easier said than done in a lot of ways. And our guest today is going to share why and how experienced leaders can lean into ambiguity, iterate often, and drive real customer and human value. It's my pleasure to welcome in to talk about this, the VML YNR Chief Experience Design Officer, Kalita McDade. Kalita, welcome. Thanks so much for being with us. Hey guys, nice to meet everyone. Likewise, likewise. I know uh, as you've come into the organization, a lot of folks may have heard your name but haven't had a chance to cross paths with you yet. So uh, give us a quick intro on you and your background and what brought you to VML. Yeah, definitely. So previous to this, I was at Ogilvy and funny enough, we had a shared client and I was like, oh my gosh, VML YNR, they do what I do. Hmm. Put the little mental <laughs> note there. And uh, while I was at Ogilvy, I was a global ex- experienced, you know, design person globally for our experience practice. Uh, Previous to that, I was at Deloitte Digital running uh, experience design globally uh, there for a couple of years. And then previous to that, all the previouses, because, you know, when you have 20 plus years, there's a lot of previous Uh, (laughs) Apple, Google and Sapient Nitro in Shanghai. Awesome. So you've definitely worked with some some of the biggest brands around the world, li- quite literally lived around the world, it sounds like, or at least <laughs> connected with those. I mean, t- talk to me about in your career. I mean, I- you've seen a lot and obviously moved through uh, a lot of, of different types of business challenges. Today, we, we're going to talk a lot as we, we hit in, in the top about iteration and, and being nimble. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I know having, you know, talked to you a little bit in the pre-show, just working through all of the different ways that you have to pivot as an experienced design leader uh, in, in today's environment uh, and being iterative. Uh, that could be perceived as kind of a buzzy buzzword, uh, but it yeah. feels like something that has to be a learned activity. Talk about in your experience how you've led your teams and lead your teams currently to constantly have that that evolution mindset. Yeah, I think iteration is so important. When I worked at Apple, before every door, there was three words or one word three times and it was simplify simplify, simplify, but the first two crossed out. And it was just, it was, it's a way of thinking, it's a way of living, but it's very hard to do. Um, it's a trust fall of sorts because there's, you're navigating ambiguity. You're not sure what's there, but in order to, to de-risk your final product, you have to iterate. Now, whether you're at your final digital product, physical product, you know, campaign, whatever you're building, those iterations are so important. Um, we always always told companies to fail fast, and you know I think those are buzzwords as well because people are in America. We're told not to fail. Mm-hmm. Failing is horrible. It's the worst. <laughs> um, but it's so necessary because you learn more from losing than you do from winning. Uh, and I think being able to iterate and then play the game again and learn from your loss is important. And I think too often we treat this like a marathon and not a relay, and it's much more of a relay. The relay part, I think, is interesting because as we think through the handoffs that happen between testing and learning Mm -hmm. and prototyping and getting in front of customers, I loved the example you gave about Apple trying to, like, again, simplify, simplify, cross out, and then simplify again. Talk to me about how CX pros can do it well in practice because I think you hear about, oh, yeah, we need to keep thinking and changing and fail fast, even if you use that, that term again. Like, Tactically, how do CX pros put themselves into a posture of always testing and always learning? 
I think we have too much of a divide right now between CX as a strategy and then XD as the practice of creating. Mm -hmm. And I think if we were to merge that a little bit more and you actually explore by doing, um, I think that's the biggest thing. I think too often we can treat CX as a precious thing that codifies where we're going and strategy that sits somewhere but isn't actionable. Or we'll look at XD and be like those people who build things. And I think a more of a tiger team, small team that sits in between in that kind of service design area where you are allowed to create and create through learning. Um, informed learning, of course, you can start to be more iterative. I think if you're looking for that full end-to-end, all of those process in place, it becomes extremely difficult. And I think what's fun about that is that it it, it doesn't, when you break it up iteratively, and it, you know, and the experiences that I think we've all had at VML YNR, it's just the way that, that we attack things, is is trying not to do too much all at once because that's where the iteration yeah. mindset comes through. If you have this end-to-end experience that you're building and there's you know obviously a ton of touch points or a ton <laughs> of different inputs that, that you have to test and learn. Uh, yeah. What I found to be kind of a slippery slope, um, both from a strategy and design perspective, is trying to learn too much all at once versus breaking mm. it up into smaller chunks. Talk about, from a design perspective and you know experience, the strategy perspective, how, how you can start to thoughtfully break things up so that you are kind of doing that relay race versus a long marathon of learning. Yeah. And I think there's different levels of testing and learning. I think there's market testing and learning, which has a larger amount of discretion and time. But when you're thinking of teaching companies how to go from project companies to product companies, there's a test and learn kind of process that we used to do that was literally three days. And I know you're going to be like, no. <laughs> so it would be, we had a three day one, a six week one, and then like a three month one. The three day one was find a very small use case. Back to what you're saying about moving small. Um, and then based off that use case, you would have the client, the customer, and then the, you know us as a business there as well. Um, and we would figure out what problem is really vexing this this organization and the, and the customer, or it could be employee, depending on what it was, would help us define because I, too, I think too often we try to rely on qual and quant research to tell us the voice of the customer mm-hmm. instead of literally having the customer in the room. Uh-huh. Um, so we would do those things and then that whole day we would come up with one use case. We would come, figure out opportunity spaces or ways that we could address that use case. And then on day two, we would start wireframing or concepting around what areas and then iterating again by day three we would prepare kind of thoughts around it um and then by day three we were done and then we were figuring out how does that now inform the business Hmm. and so three days became so imperative and so powerful Uh, we had a six-week version where we uh, combined our more strategy side cx and business strategy and overall consumer experience strategist with our XD teams and we would have a the work in parallel where we would have like a, a qual and quant phase research, market research for about a week, stakeholder interviews, observational, all that fun stuff mm-hmm. that's amazing and informative. We would then have a defined um, phase or a refinement where we would figure out what problem we're solving for. And then we would have five concepts and plays that would address those five tensions. And those things are either prototypes. And when I say prototypes, which is a loaded word, totally, um, they were either drawn concepts or like interactive, you know, keynotes, right? Mm-hmm. Just to really be illustrative to then inform the roadmap. So those are just two examples of like shorter, faster bursts of kind of figuring out 
how to be more iterative. What I thought is also, you know, very uh, crucial statement that I don't want to get lost on the, and, and pry into a little bit more here is, is bringing the customer in to the experience design process from the beginning. Yep. And I, I think that's something even as myself, uh, a CX practitioner, sometimes struggle with because I think at the beginning of the process, you want to go and do a bunch of research and try to have as much as you can in the can based on, you know, secondary or just research studies and other things that have been out there. But sometimes it feels yeah. like, and I'd love your opinion on this, it feels like just getting people uh, who obviously yeah. are representative of your personas or your targets to to be able to just sit in there and, and do it with you versus relying on research. Obviously, there's a place for that. But right. in your experience, how, how valuable has it been or imperative has it been to have the customer quite literally in the room with you versus kind of sending things out into uh, user testing or what have you to, to kind of gauge reaction that way? I think there's always uh, an you have to be careful because you need that quantity of experience to give you the kind of the red thread, right, to ensure that there's some redundancies, because otherwise you're looking at a couple people's opinions, which could be skewed, right, depending, you know, what's going on. And so the thing that we would use those groups for would be validating some of that really vast quantity of information. So it's not as generative as it is also validation. Mm -hmm. And then there's a lot of things that live and lived experiences. And what I mean by that is you can only get so much with the ones and zeros and even from like questioning people. But there's a lot of lived experiences that people have and a lot of communication that's not verbal. And so watching and observing um, is so important. So I find it to be the differentiator in some a lot of the largest projects I was a part of. It's awesome. And, and I think the other part of it that we talked a little bit about at the beginning of that that last block was driving trust and and just faith with with the stakeholders, yeah. whether it's within your own company or the clients you're serving. And I, I know leaders just generally, there's, there's a lot of relationship building that has to go in. You mentioned the word mm-hmm. trustfall earlier, building equity. Talk to me about how leaders can navigate ambiguity in, in experiences where maybe you're in the early stages of that, you know, three day or six week or even 12 week work process. And, and especially with new people that you're working with, new stakeholders or new clients, driving that trust while knowing that your, your goal is to iterate and be comfortable with failing, yeah. yet you need to have a relationship there. Talk to me about that balance and how you how you drive that balance. I think when you look at the maturation of a client relationship, in the beginning, you're looking for permission, right? You're trying to set and establish, this is what we do, this is what's going on, so you can have the permission to do things that are a little bit more ambiguous, a little bit more nebulous, a little bit harder for them to see a line of sight through. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you're looking at that, you know, uh, overall litmus of where someone is in their relationship or maturation, mm-hmm. um, it's important to have a really strong relationship. And it's also extremely important to have metrics of success defined. Um, you can do a lot of things, but if you make it measurable, if you can define what success is and what the impact of it will be, you can then define, you know, the relationship uh, in a different way because now they're not just trusting you. You're also saying these are the things I will provide and do. Mm-hmm. I think too often we say, oh, just wait and see what happens, uh, and that, that can be a little bit loose. <laughs> um, whereas if you say, hey, let's wait and see what happens, and here's what we're going to be looking for right. as we release this, and here's our strategy. This is our ambition. Setting that ambition. 
Um, I always tell ambition is always comprised of something. It's time bound, has a place where we will play, uh, a segment we will win, and then a differentiating product that we think we're bringing, right? And so defining that ambition and that success criteria is, is critical. I'd love to, to ask you a follow-up question to that because quite sure. literally in the last couple of days, um, working on things um, that that relate to that same idea of measurement and finding a way to, mm-hmm. to iterate based on that measurement. And and a lot of the stuff that's come up lately is around OKR, so objectives and key results, yep. and KPIs, key performance indicators, and the tension that exists when you're 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 wanting to have both, um, and you have to plan for both, but they're very different in what you're actually yeah. measuring and what you're using the outcomes for or the you know the the, the data for I guess for for lack of a better word. Tell me about in your experience as you go through the experience design process, kind of balancing, you know, what is our objective? What are the key results versus KPIs that have a place? And sometimes there's there's crossover there, but they're very different. They're used for different things. Talk to me in your role and your experience, how you balance the two. I think it depends on the data that already exists and the data integrity and the maturity of the business and understanding and being able to track those various things. Mm -hmm. OKRs are definitely a place I go when it's a more, not novice, but a company that doesn't have a high, how do I say this, kind of a high intelligence, and that sounds bad, but like just like a high capability within uh, the data because you don't want to put KPIs there and there's no systems there. The integrity is not there. There's redundancies mm-hmm. and data by itself without insight is also very dangerous. So I, uh, I tend to be flexible in which is leveraged or used. Sometimes it could be as simple as, Hey, what's the sentiment? Uh, what's our competitive benchmark now? What is some of the things that we're hearing that's more qualitative and social listening So you can also look at impressions, depending on what it is you're doing, whether that's a digital experience, a campaign or whatever, your measurement strategy has to be based on the information you have and the objective you're seeking. And I feel like that's that's part of that whole driving trust, because at the end of the day, uh, at least in my experience, I'd love to have you either validate or push on it even more is these (laughs) clients sometimes uh, or even just stakeholders within our own companies are saying, all right, talk to me about the, the why behind this and show me to build that trust that the data is there to support the theory. And I, I would assume that in your experience, the, the the more insight-based stuff that you can pull to the front, which is obviously powered by data, um, the, the easier it's going to be for you to drive trust over time, right? Yeah, because data and insights are the foundation. You have to jump from that foundation. And what I mean by that is I often find clients having analysis paralysis where they want to find out and understand everything before they do anything. (laughs) And they want to make sure everyone agrees and everyone's okay. And it ends up being the thing that costs the most amount of time. Mm -hmm. And so we try to do a lot of working sessions where there's alignment with clients. There's a lot of things there. And we're using a foundation of data insights or whatever it is we have, but we're going to jump into an area that is different, that is unknown and you're not going to be comfortable with it, but we're going to figure <laughs> out what it what it is, right? Yep. And you have to set that. And otherwise, you'll never do anything that is accretive or different. You will always be at parity mm-hmm. because you're always looking at what everyone else is doing instead of where you can go. Well, and talk about the risk factor, too. And, and we were joking in our, our, our prep for this podcast about 
like how what's old is new again and how yeah. you know, some of that the risk that that exists in the market today is predicated on new technology that sometimes is is not as proven or doesn't have as much data behind <laughs> yeah. it like you think about things like nfts or um just generally like technology at at its core it's evolving so fast that it it's not <clears throat> a sure thing. Uh, and I think we, we've talked metaverse before AR and VR, like these are all things that ironically, and as we've talked about this have, have been around in some capacity, yeah. per, but perhaps not adopted or we just weren't ready. I'd love to hear your perspective on some of the things like, like NFTs, AR, VR, a lot of the technology that becomes really, um, metaverse, another one that it is in all of our lexicons today yet, certain similar aspects of those technologies have existed over the last 20, 30, 40 years, yet yeah. we weren't in a place in history where society was ready for those things. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, I, I honestly find that there's a pendulum that happens. And right now we're in the fourth industrial revolution. <laughs> mm -hmm. And what they're calling it is actually the digital uh, revolution or evolution. And the part for me is that in history, there are so many times where technology has moved faster than society. And when that happens, you'll start to see that people don't adopt certain things. And so if you think of NFTs, metaverse, and all those kind of things that people are still trying to learn about, I think it's moving faster. Uh, and we have examples of this throughout history. Like you said, there's nothing new in the zoo, <laughs> as we've said before. Um, Cosmos, uh, Cosmos is a company that, lived or existed in New York and they were a delivery company in New York. And this was like 1990s. It was mm -hmm. the Amazon at that time, but it's not the Amazon because it happened too early. We were not, that's not where our society was. We were like, why do I need you to deliver something? You know, I can get it myself and then enter COVID. Right. And so you have to make sure that society's there and then technology's there at the same time, you'll start to see who the winners are. NFTs, all of these things, they are probably not as democratized as they should be because there's also society, technology, and then the apparatus that democratizes. If you think about what happened with internet, we were on our desktops, on our internet, with our AOL CDs, hoping no one called us to drop our call. That's for certain people at a certain age. <laughs> and then the phone, the mobile phone came out. And now we're able to be mobile, right? And I think that mobility and that apparatus democratized the internet. And with NFTs and, and the metaverse, right now there isn't an apparatus or device that we have adopted that is gonna allow us to kind of evangelize this new technology quite yet. Well, and I don't know if we've talked about this yet because you know we've, we've hit on these topics before in our pre-show, but the idea of the metaverse like there's an old episode of The Office where if you are familiar with the show, Dwight Schrute, who's kind of this you know nerd yeah. of the show, like he's <laughs> he has this episode where he has second life, uh, which is him yeah. living as the assistant <laughs> regional manager in yeah. the office, basically in his second life. That is essentially what is today a metaverse digital. So if you're familiar with the episode, you'll probably get a kick out of it. If not, you should go watch it. It's awesome. It's one of the, my favorite episodes, <laughs> but it's hilarious because. It, yeah. it really is a good case study in 
Like that was something that didn't obviously catch on to the same point. But here we are now as technology has advanced that maybe that becomes the thing. And I think the other the other one that that popped up that I I don't think we have talked about is how Google Glass started to become a thing. Uh, And I can't I think it was the early, early 2010s. The glass Uh, holes. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) The glass holes. And and how at, at the time it was like, oh, this could be this could be something. But it it wasn't either advanced enough or there wasn't enough adoption or like the use cases weren't there, you know, as an experienced design lead, I think I got, I got to think you're, you're living your best life right now because there are so many opportunities to say like, wow, as we move so fast, hence the iteration piece of it, there, there are ways where you can uncover some really new cool use cases that, that may actually, wait, we may be in that time where society is ready for something like this. And that's what I've been telling our clients is to discover and test and learn now before it hits the masses, (laughs) because there is a, the the adopters, the people who adopt it first will have the first right of refusal uh, around the the economy and the clients. Because the other thing that you and I were talking about is it's not just web 2.0 because web 2.0 was based on digital services. Web Mm -hmm. 3.0 is based on digital goods. And you're looking at a totally new economy and a way to immerse yourself in the world and to purchase and buy. And that combination is so, so compelling. Um, between the Google Glass and the Apple Glass and the um, Facebook Ravens that are launching, I am mm-hmm. geeking out silently. And it's in the <laughs> next three or five years where it's just going to be the glasses in front of our face. And the thing that I keep telling people, it's not about the technology. It's the idea that right now, if I want to look at my children or record what they're doing, I have something blocking mm-hmm. between me and the experience of seeing my children. And now I'm looking at an apparatus that allows me to be present when recording, present when living. And so that's going to change a paradigm shift in society. So and, and it'll be fun. I, I think so, too. And, and you mentioned the idea of this new economy or an, an additional digital economy. We're, we're seeing it with all kinds yeah. of brands that – you know, even I know metaverse is still kind of ambiguous in a lot of ways and on how, how do brands monetize or how do brands show up yep. and add value and, and be, you know, offered goods and services. But I think back to the, and this, this is going to date me a little bit, but back into the, the, the 90s, because I'm a kid of the 80s and, and early 90s, growing yeah. up with Beanie Babies and, and how they end up being like, I don't even know if they're still super valuable. I think there are probably some that are, if you still have them in mint condition, you're making like tens of thousands of dollars here, but they're kind of NFTs in a way, right? <laughs> like they're, they're things that, that had unique inherent value that obviously they're not universally singular because they made more than one of them, but there was a finite number of whatever the beanie baby of the moment was. And people ascribed value to the one like, oh, you have that one? Well, that's that's worth you know $10,000 more than the one that's next to it. And uh, it would become kind of a collector's item. I think it's it's funny how NFTs weren't a thing, but right. they, they kind of were. It, it just was yeah. by a, by another name. <laughs> it, and here's the thing for the for the youngins out there who aren't our 80, 90s babies. Beanies, beanie babies were like the rage. Like if someone, it, I don't know if you guys know it. It's like Ty Ty is yep. a company based. And they're based in Chicago, right? I think so. I think they're based in Chicago, and it was like a single guy. And he created these little small plush toys called Beanie Babies. And I know you probably know what they are. But he made limited amounts. Now, the crazy part about it is he created the first e-commerce site. (laughs) 
he was like, hey, I'm going to have these little plush toys. And guess what? I'm also going to, you know, sell them on this new thing called the Internet. Let's see what happens. And then the forum community at the time jumped in and attached themselves to this whole craze of Beanie Babies. And it became like its own stock market, <laughs> right? Its own <laughs> stock market where people are like, well, what do you have? Oh, I need this. I need that. And before you know it, these damn little babies, these little <laughs> dolls, some are worth $10,000, $100,000. And so the owner, um, and I don't know, it's Ty something. I think it, it's his name. He caught, he catches wind of it and he starts to, you know, short the system, kind of like he would stocks. <laughs> he, would, he would make some of them, watch the price go off, sell some of those off. He would remove some of them and just really started to control the narrative around what was um, released. Now his downfall which I also think will be the downfall of the NFTs. And there's parallels because, as we said, there's nothing new and we need to be mindful of history. Mm-hmm. There was an oversaturation with a, uh, you know, with a lack of real true value. Right. Um, same thing that we're seeing with the dollar now is no longer backed by gold. Gold was a finite uh, kind of, um, oh, my God, equity. I cannot, my words today, like a finite <laughs> good. Yeah. So when you start... To, to add commoditized goods as valuable, they lose their value quicker because they're commoditized and they're so rapidly um, available. It's crazy. And I think it it's really going to be interesting when the market drives something that, that even in a world where we're now starting to talk about um, you know, digital uh, avatars, digital personas, like yeah. our, my life in digital, like as much as we talk about how we we kind of move in between in shopping, mm-hmm. digital and physical spaces. But when we you start getting into living in both digital and yeah. and physical spaces kind of simultaneously, the, the opportunities to drive value really, you know, opens up quite a bit. So I, I, I could talk to you about this kind of stuff all day because I think it's, it's just fascinating to me. And I'm also a huge tech nerd. So as those that have listened to the show can attest, I, uh, I, I geek out on this stuff. So I, I appreciate you uh, spending a few minutes talking about it. I'd love to, to dig in a little bit with you as a, as a person outside of your sure. uh, cr- creative role and all your lead stuff at, at VML. And uh, as we've done on other shows during our time on the podcast, we talk about fun facts. And uh, one of the things that you told me about I was like listening to kind of your background and what, where you've been and what you do, what you like to you know, spend your time doing. Uh, I was trying to think about like, okay, what would be a good fun fact to hear about Kalita? And the, the, one of the, the bullet points you gave me was I was on the show Say Yes to the Dress. And I'm like, done. That's that's our fun <sighs> fact. Tell me yep. about how that happened. Oh, man. Oh, something <laughs> that lives in infamy. Like, yeah. I, I just can't even. So what had happened, as we, as we say, <laughs> yeah. um, I was to marry my husband that I've now been married to for about a decade plus now. And I hate shopping. Like, you want to just, you know, boil my rage. Just tell me I need to go shopping <laughs> for something. As I, And I'm someone who designs commerce sites, so don't judge me. But um, Right, right. I, they were like, oh, yeah, you have to go shopping for your dress. It's the most important thing ever. And I was like, I need a whole lot of people and a whole lot of liquor to make any of this acceptable. <laughs> so I show up with like just a gang of my girlfriends and we may or may not have had bottles of different things ready to go. <laughs> and I get to the door <laughs> of the shop that um, is in Atlanta. Lori, I think it's Lori's that typically does like the wedding dresses that say yes. And on TV, you see so many people there. They're all trying on dresses and it looks like a regular party. I was like, I'm going to do that. So I go up and I'm like, we're ready to shop. 
And they're like, no, you're not. And I was like, what do you mean? They're like, we only allow two people, like two or three people. And I was like, not on the show. When I look at the show, there's so many people. And so the lady's like, well, why don't you apply? And if you make it, you know, you can bring all your friends. And if you don't, you can still bring all your friends. I was like, deal. Done. So I, <laughs> so I fill it out. And one of the questions is, you know, why are you happy to be here? And I was like, I'm not. I hate shopping. And they're like, why do you want to be on TV? And my answer was because. It was the most horrible response <laughs> that I thought was just going to be, hey, I get to do what I want. They'll leave me the hell alone. I get there. I get a call a week later and they're like, you've been selected. I was like, selected for what? And next thing you know, I'm shooting a TV show. So, no way. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So take me through the day. Like, like so, okay, so <laughs> you, you get the call and you're like, okay, I'm going to be on the show. And you're already, I'm sure, dreading it anyway, only because it's like, this yeah. is, you, you don't like shopping anyway. Like, how was the day? Talk, talk, to, talk to me about how the process went. Was it, was it as, as it appears on the final piece? Reality TV is not a reality. Even though people <laughs> tell you that all the time, you know better. So I get there. We descend upon the location. My girls spread out. They all are told, you take this section. I take this section. Go. Like, <laughs> we're, we're on it. Because there's no part of me that really wants to shop. And I'm in shopping through and I see the dress that ends up being my final dress. It's a, it's a blush pink. And the reason I think it attracted me because everything being white, I was like, it all looks the same. Like I can't. (laughs) And so I looked at this dress. I'm like, Oh, I like this dress. And we went through the process and everything. And on the show, they make it seem like Lori selected my dress. Lori was actually never there. No way. They actually cut her, they cut her scenes uh, of her checking the dress later. And she came in towards the end just to say some things, but there was really not that much interaction with her um, in the whole process, just in the last three dresses. And then my girlfriend, who's a sweetheart, she has resting, um, resting face. We'll say that. <laughs> and my, my rule to anyone who is listening, if you have resting face and someone tells you they're shooting a TV show, politely decline. <laughs> Cause they you're going to be the villain. Her in. <laughs> you're going to be the villain. They cut her in and made her the villain. And then they asked questions. Hey, talk about the dress. But I wasn't in the room. And they're like, what would you say about the dress that you don't want to say to her face? And then they would cut it in on TV like I was in the room. It was just. Oh, man. Fine. (laughs) It was fun. We're having fun. This is fun. (laughs) This is fun, guys. Right. This is fun. So when you ended up watching the show, though, like what, what was was like the whole group of of your girlfriends like and family like watching the show together. So you're like, that's not how it went. That's not how it went. <laughs> yeah. So uh, watching TV with my girlfriends, this is already a very interactive um, activity. The amount of things thrown, the amount of like explicit things <laughs> said. Yeah. But it was also funny and we were laughing. We were joking. Uh, poor Sandra, well, that was her name or is yeah. her name. Poor Sandra is still telling me about people telling her, I saw you on the TV. You were me. So it happens. <laughs> that is so cool. That is like one of those funny, like you, you, you run on the people that have done, been reality TV guests on all kinds of shows. You hear similar, similar horror stories of that is not at all how things went down. Oh my goodness. That is so fun. But you said yes to the dress and it actually was, you were happy about it. Yeah. I said yes, it happened. And I said yes to the shooting. So choices all the Heck way around. Yeah. Heck yeah. Well, I, I I can't thank you enough again for joining us. This has been such a such a treat. Thanks. Thank you for spending time to, uh, talking about all this good stuff, iteration and yeah, obviously saying yes to the dress too was obviously obviously awesome. So really appreciate your time and we'll have to do this again. Definitely. 
Thank you so much. And thank you all for listening to Human Centered as well. To learn more about our CX practice and our approach to the work, check us out online at vmlyr.com slash CX. We'd also love to hear your feedback on the show. Give us a rating and offer up your thoughts wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon, and more. Have a topic idea or just want to drop us a line? You can connect with me on Twitter at Nick Brunker or shoot us an email. The address is humancentered at vmlyr.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.